Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We have lots and lots to cover today. For those of you who have the 20-page memo, want to go first to Exhibit C. Exhibit C, for those who don't have the memo in front of you, is entitled World Oil Supply Demand. And these numbers come from the Energy Information Administration or something like that. It's, it's, it, it's part of the Department of Energy of the United States. And what it shows is that for 22, supply was 100 million barrels and demand was 99, so or 99.4. In, in kind of an alarming way, what it shows is that 23 supplies, 101.6, and demand is 100.9. So it's projecting a, a surplus, and it states that at the end of 22, the surplus capacity in the OPEC plus countries, which is basically the only two countries that have a lot of surplus capacity, are Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, or the UAE, at 2.8. So Supply demand, you know, it makes the market look oversupplied. Now, what has happened is the largest producer is the United States at 11.9, and it's supposed to go to 12.4, and Saudi Arabia will hold flat at 10.4, which means there'll be no increases by the OPEC. OPEC. Plus, why was everyone talking $100 oil? We're talking $100 oil because... Uh, People expected Russia to go down because of all the sanctions. And in, you know, Russia just is holding pretty steady, just over a million barrels a day. So I would say from a supply demand is a bit vulnerable. Uh, if you turn to the next page from the uh, exhibit B, uh, there's current oil prices. And as you can see, the 23 oil price at the beginning of 22 is 73. By the middle of 22, it got to 88. Then by the fall, was, uh, the, the, this is, of course, future prices at the time, was in the mid-70s. And as of Monday morning, it was 66. So extreme backwardation, in other words, the current month being much higher than futures, is gone. It's flat. I mean, the prompt month as of Monday morning was 66. 23 average was 66. 24 was 65. Uh, so that's not necessarily a good sign. What that means is there's more supply around. So not, not only the EIA uh, uh, predictions or forecasts, but also the fact that now we're almost getting in a, to a contango. It's not a good sign for the price of oil. On the price of natural gas, the supply demand for that is laid out in the middle of Exhibit B. And for this year... The supply, and, and this is estimated by plants, a supply is 103 bees a day, 97.5 domestic, and demand 100.8. Well, that's 2.4. That's going to result 
in uh, weaker gas prices. And in fact, if we look at the bottom of the page, in the beginning of 22, the 23 average price was 546, with Ukraine down and LNG prices very high. By the time we got to the middle of 22, it was $5. We got to the fall, it was 560. We hit kind of a warm winter and it traded down in January to 360 something and down to 294. Now it recovers under the future curve to around the $4 range in 25. But that's based on LNG exports going from just under 12 in 22 to just under 15 in 24. That That is very important. And that's a matter of a couple of projects coming on in 24 rather than 25. And, you know, without that lift in LNG exports, you know, every all the other demand areas, power, residential, commercial, are all flat. So we're very dependent. Now those LNG facilities are being built but the question is, how quickly will they come on? So natural gas is kind of weak. The Exhibit A we've talked with, we talked about prior Wednesdays. It's, uh, you know, with all the bank run news, no one's talking about debt ceiling anymore. But the Republicans were having their retreat in Orlando. Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, I think handled a lot of the news coverage pretty well. If you look at Exhibit A, the amount of money spent by the federal government, other than Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense and interest, the fiscal 24, which would start next September, is $1.4 trillion. In 2019, before COVID, it was $910 billion. So there's a $500 billion difference there. And I think what the Republican House is saying is that some amount of progress has to be made on reducing that $500 billion increment. Maybe not by more than $100 billion, but something has now the Biden administration and the Democrats in the Senate are saying, no, we need a clean lifting of the debt ceiling. That, that discussion's going to go on and on and on. But I, I think the Republicans have a point and will probably stick to their guns. So it'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a showdown. The other thing before we get into some discussion that Mike and Jason are going to lead on AI is in this version of the 20 pages, the four pages on energy companies are updated. That is uh, page nine. Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco, page 10, the midstream companies, Kinder Enterprise, Energy Transfer, page 11, three oil upstream companies, EOT, Magnolia, Permian Resources, and page 12, the gas companies, Antero, EQT, and Chesapeake. So gas companies have not gone down as quickly as the commodity, but they are down. Times last year's cash flow, they're ridiculously cheap, I mean, they're Antero's three and a half times free cash flow from last year, but this year's cash flow would be quite a lot lower because of gas trading down, you know, a buck and a half at least. Same thing for EQT and Chesapeake. Uh, in terms of the upstream companies, you know, GO says their premium price off these statistics, nine times free cash flow. 
Magnolia, much smaller, five times free cash flow, permanent resources, which is relatively recent. It's a private company called Cogate that's merged with into a public company, about eight times free cash flow. Not too much change in the midstream companies. They haven't been able to pay down debt because they distribute a lot of money and they have a fair amount of capex. They're trading for Kinder is 17 times free cash flow, Enterprise 15 times, and energy transfer 12 times. They all have pretty high dividends. Make a 10% yield on energy transfer, a 10% return from the dividend. But they haven't been able to reduce debt like the upstream companies. As far as Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco go, their times last year's cash flow, they're all around six or seven times last year's cash flow. Obviously, with reduced oil prices, they will be somewhat lower this year. But with the decline in the price of oil and the weak gas market because of the warm winter and also kind of an oversupply, these companies are kind of on sell, relatively speaking. I don't know whether, you know, I mean, you have to you have to have a view about uh, commodity pricing. I think what we want to do is we want to get to the front of the 20 pages. And I think the first company we want, we want to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence on, on chip and software companies. And I think the place to start is page three and the video because they had a, uh, you know, an investor day yesterday. And I, I, I know Mike spent a lot of time, probably Jason spent a lot of time and not just a focus just on the video, but the impact of artificial intelligence on chip and software companies. So with no further ado, I'll turn it over. Why don't we try Jason first on the impact of AI on the video? with their investor day yesterday. Yeah, so they they hold their annual GTC developer conference. And while Mike and I haven't been able to go through all the the sessions that interest us, we watched the keynote by the CEO, Jensen Huang. And what they're doing is is very impressive. It it highlights how they're an integral part of everything going on in, in the AI innovation. And they're, you know, just the advances they, they, are producing with their H100 and, and A100 chips and packaging them them into s- these supercomputers in a box and then selling them at, at a data center scale level to the clients is is super impressive. And some of the things that came out of that is just how big Oracle is in this in in buying these supercomputers and providing them as as a service in contrast to the other cloud providers. Um, I know that you thought I was. I was kind of interested in Oracle in the in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm less so now after after looking at it more, but but still impressive what they're doing with AI as an attempt to catch up uh, to the other hyperscalers. I, I would add the biggest takeaway for me when it came to cloud hyperscalers was that Amazon wasn't listed on their list of partners essentially for this next generation of Nvidia Cloud and. There are various perspectives on that as to why, but one perspective is that Amazon's going to get left behind when it comes to this stuff. And you could also read that the other way is Amazon's got a different strategy that they're implementing. So there's no, no right or wrong here, but it, it was impressive to see, most importantly from NVIDIA, that this strategy of building the hardware, but more importantly, having the software ecosystem that natively supports that hardware is key to their long-term success 
in enterprise artificial intelligence. And that's been pretty much fully validated at this point from our perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and some interesting things on the software side where two big takeaways for me is, is how, how advanced they're getting with simulating real world physics. So they're, they demoed a lot of cases where they use, they use BMW as, as their case study where they built an entire automotive factory in uh, a virtual world in order to simulate the placement of all the machines, simulate the assembly line, how, how the cars would flow through and how long they would spend at each station. And they could pretty quickly tweak placing different machines within the assembly line and, and different robots and see how that affected the pace of the car flowing through the assembly line. Um, the other big takeaway I had was how they, they're folding in, folding in AlphaFold some of Google's research with simulating proteins and the interactions in the body. So I think we're going to see a lot of advancements in the next couple of years where we're going to come up with some, some medical treatments at a much faster pace, you know, and, and maybe better than, than uh, standard of care today um, due to better simulating proteins and their interactions in the body. Agreed. And we'll, we'll include a link to the keynote in the email today. So if you haven't seen it, you can check it out. D has been touted as a cheaper way to participate because uh, of my numbers, which I'll update this weekend. I make NVIDIA 100 times free cash flow and AMD 25 times. But I guess, especially with the software, NVIDIA is awfully far ahead of AMD would be your judgment. That's correct. And we don't see that changing. Now, you know, is 100 times free cash flow really where you want to be buying it? I, I don't really... I don't know. Um, I think looking forward, this enterprise customer is a lot more resilient than a crypto miner. So we're, we're really happy to see that. And we think that long-term, that's a better market to be in. But it's hard to get away from the fact that it is still quite expensive. Right. And Intel as a value play is, I guess, what, what investors would say, Intel's not a value play. Intel's a value trap. Yep. <laughs> um, another takeaway from this is is where is CPU technology going? And the reality is is that it's moving away from x86 and to ARM and maybe even to RISC five. Because long story short, you just need more specialized processors, and Intel's a little ways behind in delivering power efficient processors for data center scale. And, and that's ultimately what most of these hyperscalers are buying for. Yeah, and, and if you take the CEO of NVIDIA's uh, a word at face value, they're having a, a tremendous amount of success selling their new CPU that's packaged along with their GPU um, into the data center. Yeah. And, and that goes back to the discussion we had when NVIDIA was in talks to acquire ARM. The, the question was, do they need to acquire ARM in order to effectuate their strategy in the data center? And the, the answer was ultimately no. I mean, our, our assumption is there was more to that strategy than they let out. And, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate that maybe it didn't happen, but nonetheless, they're still able to pursue that uh, data center strategy that, that they had set out. Right. And Taiwan semiconductors maybe 50 times free cash flow where NVIDIA is 100 times, but, and of course, 
if it needs Taiwan Semiconductor to make this stuff, but there you have political risks. Probably an NVIDIA stockholder should consider putting for every two or three dollars you have in NVIDIA, one dollar in Taiwan Semiconductor, or how would you how would you how would you rank those two investments? It's tough to rank, I, I think. I mean, we, we've we had a position in both for a very long time. The Taiwan Semiconductor is quite small, especially relative to everything else in our portfolio. At the end of the day, Taiwan Semiconductor does have to make very large capital expenditures, and its ability to charge above and beyond what their costs are depend on the next best option. And so long as they maintain their lead as the only option, if you're on the leading edge, they're going to be in a very good position. I'm less concerned about the political implications, I think. The semiconductor strategy in China, I think, will have a longer-term effect on them because China's sort of incented now to build out their trailing-edge capacity, which generates a lot of the gross profit for Taiwan Semiconductor, right? Because they keep their fabs up and running at a very low marginal cost. So pretty much once the fab is completely depreciated. So basically anything they produce can be very profitable. But if the Chinese government is going to subsidize a lot of that production, then potentially that could impact some of those margins. So either way, I mean, it, it's the, the semiconductor industry doesn't run without Taiwan Semiconductor. And how feasible, Jason, do you think it is for the U.S. to continue to prohibit, restrict, leading-edge chips or technology from China without, you know, adverse consequences for NVIDIA, AMD, Taiwan Semiconductor, ASML. Mike was just talking about Taiwan Semiconductor losing some of its gross margin as Chinese chip manufacturers do trailing-edge. But if, if, you, if you had to look forward the next five years of this continued kind of embargo on taking uh, high-end capability, either chip-making machines or the chips themselves from people like ASML and NVIDIA and, and I guess by implication, Taiwan Semiconductor. I thought Taiwan Semiconductor would be free to do whatever it wants, but apparently as part, if, if they are going to get support from the U.S. government for their facilities in Arizona, they're going to have to agree have some restriction on what kind of chips and technology they they ship into China. I mean, is this something viable that could continue for the next five years or more without adverse consequences to, you know, to the kinds of companies we want to own stock in? Yeah, I, I think it could continue. It, you know, they they weren't in the market for advanced chips in the first place, and then we're just removing them from the future market. So it, it makes the total adjustable market for these companies smaller, but overall, these chips have to get made for the rest of the world. Uh, and it's uh, due to the advances to artificial intelligence, the, the market's growing rapidly in the data center. Right. right? The, the restrictions that the White House is floating are, are pretty onerous. So I'll be interested to see who does take that money. I believe it restricts these companies to only expanding sales in China by 5% over the next decade, I believe. So It'll be interesting who who takes the, who commits to that. Right, right. The uh, did we switch to AI and 
subscription with people paying for Microsoft products, including AI or others, on a subscription basis to, to kind of offset the cost. Because I think one of the things we've discussed is the amount of data center capacity to run these AI programs is significant. And mm-hmm. if all you're relying on is 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 buttressing your position and making money from advertising, whether you're Microsoft or someone else, aren't you better off if the stuff is that expensive to uh, provide as a service trying to collect subscription revenues too? Or how, how does that look to look to the two of you? Yeah, I, I guess I kind of want to start with, with two companies we haven't talked about in a while being Meta and Apple. And if we have enough time, it'll, it'll circle back around to Microsoft and Google. Yeah. So one of the big advancements in the last couple of weeks has come out of, of Meta. And if, if you look at what they're trying to do, their goal is to have as many users on Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, so they can match advertisements to eyeballs. Um, so in order to keep their apps relevant, they've been developing their own versions of these large language models. And uh, their goal is to develop these models that run faster and, and they're much smaller to package onto a, a mobile app, you know? So they, they've produced several models of different sizes and this, the smallest being 7 billion parameters, which for comparison's sake, that's chat GPT was trained with 175. So we're talking like four to 5% the size. And they, they claim it matches chat GPT in quality and speed while meta Meta released documentation explaining what they're doing. They didn't make these libraries public. However, someone um, from the internal research that got their hands on the model leaked it, and that occurred two weeks ago. So since in the last two weeks, a handful of researchers have been able to get these models running on first a MacBook laptop and then on a Google Pixel phone. So the, the, size of the, the end result size of these models is four gigabytes, where previously this model required five of the most advanced NVIDIA chips in order to run. And now we're talking about four gigabytes running on a, on a cell phone. So, so their goal is obviously to have, you know, chat GPT like function embedded within their family of apps. And if you look at their family of apps, they're, they're probably the, the biggest messaging platform in the world between WhatsApp and, and Facebook messenger. And, and then turning to Apple, you know, their objectives are, are kind of aligned with, with Facebook and Meta's. Um, Meta's motivations are, are, are to get you on their apps, and, and Apple's motivations are to sell you an iPhone so that you can use their app store to download those apps. So if they're making money from the app store, you know, and, and, and Meta's apps can't run their language models on an iPhone and maybe they can run on a, on a Samsung phone, you know, Apple's in trouble there. So going back a, a little bit, a couple of years ago, Apple released what they called a, a neural engine, and it's a, a separate chipset with package in the processor there that is, is specifically designed to run, you know, these AI machine learning workflows. And they've, they tailored that to image and video processing originally. So it, it powered the face ID that unlocks your, your iPhone. It powers the the, you know, the, the, the animojis, the Snapchat filters and, and that kind of thing. So you can imagine that, that Apple's working on a, a mobile chip specifically for these large language models that, you know, your, your iPhone's going to natively 
run all of these models without having to go back to the cloud. Yeah, and I think that ties to the, the basic strategy that we think we see playing out at Apple in that the, the goal is to commoditize your complements, right? The more AI becomes a commodity and the more Apple is the device by which you access that commodity, the more value accrues to Apple. So we see that with their native support for some stable diffusion, an image model that is built into their software and hardware now. Yeah, and, and so how this circles back to, to Google and, and uh, Microsoft is, is now you're looking at the, the scale of these language models being much smaller. They don't require a cluster of servers to, to run the inference to, to generate you know, the, the messages back to you. If they require a single processor on a, on a single server that's relatively low power, um, how, does that, how does that impact the economics of, of Google search? You know, maybe they can provide their results with that, without it costing three cents a query. And then how does that impact NVIDIA if they need less, less of their processors to run it? I think NVIDIA has a little bit of a lock on the, on the, the training side of it, which is, is hugely processor intensive, but but maybe the inference side is less of a sure thing. Right. So there always, there's always going to be a requirement for the training piece, but the less inference that's done in the cloud is probably better for most of these people. It's definitely better. It drives them the marginal cost of doing the inference to zero. You know, if, if, if it's on your own phone, it doesn't cost data or power in the data center. It's essentially free for you to, to do the AI inference. It's really interesting. So... This, this would, to the extent that we've seen Microsoft as the early winner able to include the uh, AI programs in their, you know, their Office products and Windows products, Meta could steal a, steal a march on them by having a, a, a lower cost AI program to deliver. But I've I've avoided Meta or Facebook, but I, I guess I have a file. I guess I have to add them to one of the pages now if they are uh, this kind of project. I'm to Mike this morning, and uh, we're talking about loading stock and how the founder is kind of in control. But Mike was actually saying some kind things about Zuckerberg. I, I, I don't know whether Jason would agree, but uh, at least having gotten off too far into uh, doing these avatars and whatnot, he has the sense to uh, move back to uh, something that'll be better for uh, cash flow and whatnot. So, Mike, I've I probably done a poor job explaining uh, uh, changed or somewhat positive view of Zuckerberg. So I'll turn it over to you and then Jason for the last word. Sure. So, so I'll compare and contrast Zuckerberg and the CEO of founder of Snapchat, Evan Spiegel, both of them have super voting shares that give them effective control of their companies. What Zuckerberg has, you know, sort of disappointed a lot of people with this pivot to the metaverse. What has been impressive is, has been his pivot back away from that and focusing on the fundamentals of the business versus Snapchat, Spiegel, which seems to be continuing to sort of light dollars on fire and dilute shareholders. So I, I think the, you know, the mark of a good founder is the ability to make a decision and commit. And I think that that is what we kind of see happening with Zuckerberg here. You agree with that, Jason? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, he's making the decisions that he needs to, uh, he, he was lighting $10 billion on fire. <laughs> it's maybe he's still doing somewhere close to that, but it seems like focus is shifted back to what makes them money. And a lot of this, I mean, theoretically is in response to shareholders, not so much in an activist way, but Brad Gerster wrote a, basically a letter to Zuckerberg saying it's time to tighten up. It's time to think about shareholders. It's time to generate cash flow, And it seems that that call was heated. I, I guess, I guess that the tech world will finish with this thought. Can you see what Mike and Jason think? He's, the pole position for uh, trying to do with your people belongs to Elon Musk at Twitter. But the second position probably is uh, Zuckerberg at uh, Meta. Well, they, they'd have to cut a lot more in order to get down to the skeleton crew that's operating Twitter these days. But but they could versus Twitter. They have a lot more cash flow to work with. <laughs> so. Well, it, it, the thing that impresses me is Jason's point about being able to run these AI programs at much lower cost because that makes a great deal of sense. If, if the consumer thinks it's almost as good, that has to be a, a good lesson for uh, how to utilize AI. And with that, everyone be well, stay well, and we'll be back on next Wednesday. Yeah? More on AI. I'm going to predict that all our bank stuff will be all boost by next Wednesday. So we just continue to concentrate on AI and other ways to uh, make money investing in the tech industry. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.